And if we take that kind of profit making as a kind of natural category, then we are not going to solve the problem. Every little question was equally weighed, and it wasn't just that, oh, I own this tree, I'm going to cut it down. It was a community resource. The world would be very sustainable without us. It's the interaction between the economy and the natural environment that's creating these issues that we have to face up to. From Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina, this is Sound Effect. Here's your host, Megan Hayes. You may or may not realize just how much your daily life and everything you do relates to sustainability. At Appalachian, there are a lot of experts relating sustainability not only to their own lives, but to every academic discipline, every classroom lecture, and every interaction we have professionally as well as personally. Recently, we invited three of these academic experts to the podcast studio to talk about Appalachian's commitment to sustainability and how it manifests in our research, our creative work, our teaching and mentoring both in and out of the classroom, and our daily interactions. We see this conversation as a jumping off point, and we hope you'll be inspired to listen to their entire conversation, which we've broken into four parts. Right now, you're hearing part three, although you can approach these in any order. This part of the discussion revolves around sustainability and economics, although there's lots of economic talk throughout the entire series, but these conversations can get really philosophical. So in this section, we turn to the topic of metrics. That is, as hard as we work toward reducing our waste, our energy usage, our economic and social inequities, how can we tell if we're getting anywhere? We'll take a few seconds to introduce you to or reacquaint you with our panel, and then we'll get started. Dr. Dinesh Padel is an assistant professor in the Department of Sustainable Development, whose research and teaching interests include climate change, identity politics, political economy, and subaltern social movements. Dr. Shay Tuberty is an associate professor in the Department of Biology, whose research interests are in ecological biology, with a focus on water quality issues. Dr. Tuberty is also co-chair of Appalachian State University's Sustainability Council. And Dr. Todd Cherry a professor in the Department of Economics whose research and teaching interests include environmental and natural resource economics, regional economics, and public economics. Dr. Cherry is also the director of the Center for Economic Research and Policy Analysis at Appalachian and a senior research fellow at the Center for International Climate and Environmental Research, Oslo, in Norway. Now let's get to their conversation. One thing that uh, that I wanted to just touch back on a little bit was this concept of benchmarking that you were talking about, Dr. Padel, and that's such a natural way to measure progress. So if we're not using benchmarking to measure progress, then what other metrics can we use or how can we say, yeah, we've moved the dial on something or we've made progress in this area or that area? Fantastic. I think the, the, the crux, the root, of the problem is that we have already these defined benchmarks and that creates we must achieve them and we take them as natural given categories we take like the market the economy how the economy operates the how the society is organized uh, how we measure our own progress what makes us happy they are all set for us and that's the problem and we take them as very natural even though they are very recent generation few hundred years 
in the human history of several thousands, right? So they are definitely not natural. They are social product, fulfilling certain interests, interests of certain type of people only. But now they became so dominant and powerful that they define our course, they define our discourse, they define our culture, they define the way how we operate, right? Therefore, unless and until we are ready to really think uh, differently, beyond these boxes, beyond these categories, beyond these benchmarks, we are not able to think through sustainability or a different kind of future. So therefore, we do not need to measure. We do not need to know where to go. We just need to behave very ethically, correctly, and that doesn't, you know, that doesn't exploit nature, that doesn't exploit people. That's it. If we do not do these things and we forget about these already defined benchmarks which are, which are found to be counterproductive to our sustainability, then we should be ready to give them up. And to do that, it's a, it's a massive um, project because they are already very natural to us. We take them as granted, right? So that's the problem. So figuring out that benchmark, coming up with universal global definition of certain thing, finding out certain indicator that is good for everyone, is already very wrong and that proved it wrong because that's that's how we did for the last several hundred years and that didn't work i think we should recognize that and move on from there dr jerry can you speak to that a little bit um yeah i think it's more nuanced not so black and white and and even markets and at the fundamental level it's just a, a mutually beneficial exchange which has been going on for all of human history whether you're a hunter gatherer and you're just it's a mutually beneficial exchange and as uh, society develops and technology develops i mean you have apple pay and i mean it's then uh, that whole transaction that's always been there takes on a whole new form so the fundamental behavior is shaped by our culture and that's part of it and then you go across different countries and you'll have different worldviews on how to organize their economy there are vast differences across countries in terms of how they organize their economies and you see some are much more sustainable than others so there are choices we can make and there's metrics we can use to assess ourselves and how we're doing i don't think there's anything wrong with being self-reflective and to be self-reflective you have to have something to look at. The problem is when we try to synthesize a complex system down to one number or one metric, some movement is trying to throw everything into one progress indicator. And really what that does is strips away all the trade-offs that we face, that we have to make decisions about. And really what we need to do is have a set of measures and indicators and understand what they mean and understand how they interact with one another. But that takes time, that takes some insights, and it doesn't fit well for a 15-second soundbite on the news. I mentioned earlier about the education system. Education is much more uh, intellectual enterprise and means so much more than a graduation rate, a retention rate. But those are the measures that we use to give us some insights um, on how we're doing, but hopefully we don't define our purpose by those metrics it's a challenge it's a challenge i'll just add like for 50 seconds which is that yes it would be wonderful if we understand market is that collective common sharing to enhance collective well-being that would be fantastic that's what we want right 
tribal people uh, in Indian forest or uh, uh, imagine in, in Brazil, they are also exchanging their goods, right? They are sharing their things and doing all those things. But is the dominant market system that we have, is it really recognizing that? No, it doesn't. But it defines the contemporary development and market system. How it defines is these people are very backward. They are primitive. They do not know how to do it. The way they are doing is bad. Therefore, we need more development. We need to civilize them. That's why we treat these people from around the world. So it is simply not about you know sharing and enhancing collecting well-being. They are exactly doing that. They are happy the way they are doing, right? But we say that you are wrong. Therefore, we need to develop you and transform you to our different being, right? That's what we are doing. That's what international development is all about, right? So the w market would be fantastic on that to enhance social well-being. But if it is used for some kind of corporate growth, profit-making venture around the world, that creates problem. And if we take that kind of, uh, you know, profit-making as a profit-making venture as a kind of natural category, then we are not going to solve the problem. And so it's dominant understanding right now is that that's quite natural. We take this kind of market is for granted natural. That's where I was going. But if it is for total social well-being, definitely, why not? That's what we want. Dr. Chibity, can you talk a little bit about the concept of metrics and measuring progress? I know Jed Moody came in and talked about the Energy Summit recently, and that was one of the questions that, that I asked him. And I think, you know, I did that because that's a real natural question um, for a lot of us is, you know, tell us, you know, what goals are you setting and how are you measuring progress toward those goals? And so, you know, how do we answer questions like that when we're really talking about a paradigm shift here? Yeah, it's problematic. Um, I'm trying to listen to these two really well-informed faculty talk about these metrics and in social and economic terms. And, you know, I, I've, I've got to stay in my home base here in environmentalism. And so metrics for environmental and, you know, natural resources, whether it's water or forest, soils, you know, anything, uh, even energies, you know, it's, uh, it's one of those things where people put value on having biodiversity and water quality and quantity. There are certainly metrics out there that we use to measure how good a water quality do you have here, and it's something that I spent a lot of time doing with my students. And we, you know, really do enjoy lots of water here. It's very high quality. I would argue the best in the in the world. It can't be any better than we have here. Um, I, I take that back. It can be better, but um, but as far as status quo, it's excellent. And those benchmarks do serve as a goal to make them better. At what point are they good enough? And uh, at what point do you overstep your use of other resources in order to make those better? So it comes back to the balance. So I think what we need to be looking at is, is you know, it's been brought up a couple of times, is if you go back to some of the ancient cultures that were probably the longest-lived cultures, as, as we think they were, Plains Indians, uh, the Aborigines in, in Australia, which I, you know, I interacted with a the last remaining elder in a small community with uh, some of the highest biodiversity in the world in a small uh, rainforest in northeastern Australia. And what Ernie, his name was, uh, said to us is that back when he was a child, the decisions were made by the community based on, A, what did the, the, the immediate tribe get from it? And B, what did it do to their 
holistic resource. Um, so if it was a forest question, it's like, do we cut down this tree? I mean, they literally talked about, do we cut down this tree? Why do we need this tree? Well, we need boomerangs because we're going to war against this thing. We need the, we need, we need the root wood for making boomerangs. Okay, well, that's our benefit. What happens to the forest once that tree comes down? Well, it's the tree next to our stream. It's going to allow more you know, water to come in or more uh, sunlight to come to the stream. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's a bad thing. So every little question was equally weighed. And um, it wasn't just that, oh, I own this tree. I'm going to cut it down. It was a community resource. And I think going back, and it's, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, we're not going back that way. Well, we probably need to take lessons learned from those, those cultures and take a step back. And I think Dinesh was right. If the people that own the companies that are all about making money for everyone and only making money for everyone, not taking into consideration what the impact is long-term and really looking at it from a sustainable point of view, then uh, things won't change. We need to go back and, and take some of those lessons learned from earlier cultures. And, and again, that's where our anthropologists can contribute to sustainability. That's where our historians can contribute to the sustainable efforts. So uh, again, I, don't, I think the ideals that need to be adopted to move us forward are going to come from academic universities, you know, academic uh, cultures. And again, there, it's been called the ivory tower. We make fun of ourselves. You know, we're living in this ivory tower, but it's for the public good that we're thinking this way. It's not because we're trying to promote our own ideas. And we fully understand that academicians are contributing to the problem as many as others, but we're trying to make up for that by picking a direction that's going to take us away from the problems. Dr. Cherry, can you talk about what a sustainable economy does look like? That's come up, you know, in bits and pieces throughout this conversation so far. But are there examples now that you can point to? I think that one of the fundamental issues for a sustainable economy is what we've alluded to before is um, paying the full cost of your actions and consumption or activities. That would go a long way to addressing a lot of the problems. And I think that's a view that's pretty fundamental across all political stripes. All economists would agree with that. Getting back to climate change, I mean, that's a problem because for generations we haven't been paying the full cost of using that resource. If we were, we would have already been transitioned away from fossil fuels because the relative prices would have shifted the behavior and the investments and everything to be more sustainable. What I've alluded to before is this idea that lower prices are always better, and that's, um, that's not the case. For a, an economy to work well, the prices have to send the right signals to, to the participants and to the members of society so they make better decisions. And, um, and when the prices aren't right or when they're too low, they, that's when policy needs to step in and, and adjust those things, uh, either directly or indirectly through, the, through different policy mechanisms. And that's one of the uh, troubling things is, is with climate change, we have solutions. We have plenty of solutions, and some countries have pursued those, some with more success than others. The problem is political, and, uh, and, and getting some of these solutions through and enacted and agreed upon is, has been a challenge. And, of course, when you start talking about international problems, because when you have a local public good, it's an easy, easier problem to solve. And as the scope gets larger and larger, and uh, you can't get much larger than climate change, it becomes really difficult, especially when you're dealing with sovereign nations. Whereas in the U.S., the government can pass a rule and, you know, new standards and, and get everyone on the same page. Internationally, it's all voluntary. 
I mean, the, the countries can opt in or opt out to solve this problem. So it's another animal. And then when you start talking about local economies versus national and international economies, it's uh, all those things interact and affect one another. But there are great examples of, I wouldn't say that they've reached some ideal of sustainable economies, but um, the Scandinavian countries have done a, a wonderful job. I spent some time in Norway and 98% of their electricity is hydro and the distribution of income is quite equal. They're at the top of the list on all the human development rankings, but they also have issues that they have to deal with. Germany's making great efforts in terms of pushing away from fossil fuels. And so there's a promising actions and steps taken across the world. Um, it's just not enough. We have to scale it up quite a bit to get to where we want to go. Okay. Um, yeah, I would rather tone down this economy part because the, every time when we, we talk about community, society, or a nation, we talk about economy comes first as a defining kind of centripetal kind of, you know, center of everything. That's actually brings problem than solution. We should think through these end goals rather than these means, which are economies, right? So that's fundamental. And definitely any kind of economic system or social practices, I would say, you know, community practices or social practices rather than economies, they take care of ecological integrity and social well-being or social equity, for me, that's sustainable economy. If that doesn't take care of these two issues and keeps exploiting people, increasing inequality, and exploit natural resources, depleting forest or in other elements of environment, that's not sustainable. Even it look produce profit now, or even if it does good for this community, probably it does bad to another community next to it. For example, if Boone takes all of his water here, pollutes it, and throws it down to Asheville, it destroys them there. Uh, Norway probably does very good in within Norway. It has very good e distribution system probably, but Norway also exploits resources from other countries. I know Norway makes a lot of money from Nepal. It's a very poor country in Asia, but it gets a lot of money, a lot of profit from there. So our understanding of justice and equity shouldn't only be within one community or one nation. It should be cross-nation. Uh, you know, nations are, uh, are in different um, positions in terms of who has access and who doesn't. Same with individuals. Male, usually in patriarchal society, and globally too, men are more accessible to get access to resources than, than women. Same way with uh, you know, race and other things. So therefore, any kind of economic system that deals with that within and outside, then that's a sustainable economy for me. And there are all kinds of examples. I mentioned community forestry that started in the, in the 70s in Nepal. The idea was of community forestry came to counter that very massive deforestation that was so dominant in the Himalayas in the 50s and 60s by these companies. And then later on, people started just cutting that down because all these companies were taking the these trees away. But how community forestry started was give that forest back to these people, ask them, okay, do fulfill your needs, do whatever you want to do. You're satisfying your needs are the priorities, right? Then communities started just planting trees, preserving trees, and then, you know, mobilizing ecosystem, fulfill their needs. Sometimes they sell, sometimes they do not. Profit making is not their main goal. So how they do is they collect resources, distributes whoever needs it, 
fantastic. I think it, it works. There are all other examples too. These green eco villages in, in the, around the US, I think they are working fantastic for so many people. There are so many cooperatives. Their goal is not to destroy environment and not to exploit other people that increases inequality, right? And I think we have all kinds of examples. And I really appreciate your example from Australia, because if we can get over of this very racial supremacy, racial hierarchy, and then learn from these indigenous communities, I think we have hundreds and thousands of diverse examples that teach us how we can achieve sustainable communities. To be able to do that, we need to get rid of this already very defined, big, natural, naturalized categories of defining society. Well, that really, that it almost sounds like what you're saying is start with the equity piece. Absolutely. Without, uh, you know, you start dealing with that, you already naturally assume that there is a hierarchy. And in hierarchy, what happens? Someone is powerful and other is not. And whatever that powerful person says becomes natural, right? And... Therefore, always that dominant interest get priority. So without first dealing this fundamental situation of equity, I really, let's believe that we will not achieve sustainability because that's the, every, that will drive everything. There will be dominant interest that suppresses other, then the suppressed people resist. So it creates always this kinds of tension and that tension will not lead to our social well-being. That, that's how we want to see sustainability at the end. In the last part of our discussion, I ask our experts to go from theory to practice. How do we get all this done? And how do we prepare our students to do the important work of making our world a more sustainable and just place? Next time on Sound Effect. Today's show was written and produced by Troy Tuttle, Dave Blanks, and me, Megan Hayes. Our sound engineer is Dave Blanks. Our web team is Pete Montaldi and Alex Waterworth. Our theme song was written and performed by Derek Wyckoff of Naked Gods. Our podcast studio is dedicated to Greg Cuddy. Special thanks to Stephen Dubner for the inspiration, advice, and moral support. Sound Effect is a production of the University Communications Team at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. Thanks for listening. For Sound Effect, I'm Megan Hayes. Hi, Sound Effect listeners. Just a quick note about these sustainability conversations. We were actually surprised, pleasantly surprised, and in retrospect, we really shouldn't have been surprised, but we were, that this conversation got so deep so fast. And we knew even before we started recording the conversation with Drs. Podell, Tuberty, and Cherry, who we dubbed the three wise men, that we needed to hear from wise women as well, women and men from more disciplines like art and education and government and justice studies, and from people who help run our campus as well as teach our students. And pretty quickly, we understood this was becoming its own program. So we decided to launch a new podcast series hosted by a sustainability expert, someone who is so steeped in the concept that it literally informs his daily life, what he eats, drives, how he interacts with others, why his lights are never turned on in his office. That person is Dr. Lee Ball, and he leads the Office of Sustainability here at Appalachian. His new podcast series is called Find Your Sustainability, and you can hear it on iTunes or at AppalachianMagazine.org. Hope you enjoy it and Lee as much as we do.